Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the othered and the victims as well. Because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. What? Absolutely not. It is false. And these crimes rarely get any public attention because the news is racist. Although apparently Elon Musk agrees with us now. Anyway, allegedly. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this week he tweeted the news is racist so okay <laughs> wow well, copyright right. much yeah <laughs> And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. She has a spot at the cookout, y'all. She is <laughs> well, she's an ally. Fix Beth a plate. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. So uh, who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we're talking about Homer Lee Jackson III, a black man accused of killing at least five women in Portland, Oregon in the 80s and 90s. All of the women were black and all died by asphyxiation or strangulation. All right. Well, before we get into it, how you doing? I'm exhausted. Yes. <laughs> yes. What a week yes. already. And it's only Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, same. I feel the exact same way. Uh, it just I don't know what it is. Beware the Ides of March. I remember reading that somewhere in high school. I don't know. But uh yeah, it's just a lot. So much. It's nuts. Yeah. So much. Uh, but let's get into these listener letters because I can't wait to hear the angels sing. Okay. 
Well, hello, angels. Thank <sighs> you. I need to make that my ringtone so when the student loan people call me, <laughs> I won't be so stressed out. What's in that bag, Beth? <laughs> well, I wanted to say thank you to Jennifer for your kind email. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. Yes, and this is for you. Yeah, Fantastic. Thank you. And I wanted to say, please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. And we have no new Patreons this week. That's okay. We love all of you who are still here rocking with us and supporting our show. But we did, I want to say, get a lovely IG message from Monica L. Yeah. She's not the only one who thinks Beth deserves a plate at the cookout. <laughs> now, Monica says, <clears throat> I'm on episode 33. And Wendy, you just stated our concern with the white lady bringing the potato salad to the cookout. <laughs> that was the episode Beth must have had a friend from New Orleans who told her to bring the potato salad. And I had to interject with my concerns. Uh, but uh, she said it was full of seasonings and everybody, everything is okay. But she said, uh, Monica, I just died, laughed out loud at work and almost choked. I love, love, love Fruit Loops podcast. Uh, I initially thought you both were white ladies. Not the first time in my life I've heard that. But uh, Beth, you are welcomed into the Black sisterhood. Amen. Uh, now, thank you guys for keeping me entertained while cleaning other people's houses. And I have a cleaning service and you guys keep me laughing. Aww, I wish you would have given so nice. us the name of your um, cleaning service, Monica, because yeah. we would have shouted it out, boo. But get back with us and we will shout it out and in we'll the do future. It. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So this is for you. Yeah, thank you, Monica. And thank you, Miss Monica. So we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour a day? Hmm. Spend more time with your kids? Go to the hmm. gym? Hmm. Work on a hobby? Take a nap? <laughs> Can you do all those things in 60 minutes? Just kidding. <laughs> you know, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Yeah. But what we do with that time, we don't always know. But the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what it is. And therapy can help you figure that out. Find what matters to you most and make it a priority so that you can find the time to do more of it. Yeah. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for everyone. Mm -hmm. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. And I've been in and out of therapy most of my life. Same. And it has had such a positive influence on my life that I honestly do not know who I would be without therapy. And I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know either. <laughs> Listen, Beth and I have both used BetterHelp. Yeah. And we love it. And if you are thinking of starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com fruit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, and we're back. Now, remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Our subject today is Homer Lee Jackson III, who pled guilty to killing four women in Portland, Oregon in the 80s and 90s. All right. Well, let's get into some stay yeah yeah yeah. So this case, uh, it's interesting. There's five victims, right? but the fifth one wasn't revealed until very recently. And so we just want to lift up the names of the victims and say rest in power and peace, queens. And to those who love them and those who are left in the wake of the lives that were taken too soon, love and light to you all. So the victims' names are Essie Carrie Jackson, who was 23, Tanya Nanette Harry was 19, Angela Dina Anderson was 14 years old. Latonja Lee Watts was 29 and Luana Janelle Triplett was also 29. She's the latest victim that was revealed due to DNA. Uh, And all were sex trafficking victims forced into sex work. And each was sexually assaulted and asphyxiated or strangled. They were known to work Northeast Union Avenue, now known as Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. And in each case, according to the state, the victim's breasts were exposed and the pants of each victim was either unzipped, unbuttoned, or pulled down. And I also just wanted to say... uh, (laughs) Before I get into too many tangents, just get it out of the way. Um, The victims were victimized in death, but also in their lives. So let's get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Portland, Oregon, and it's Oregon's largest city. Located on the northern edge of Oregon, just south of Vancouver, Washington, across the Columbia River. The original residents of the area were the Multnomah, a tribe of Chinookan people. The area was also home to the Kathlamet, the Clackamas, other bands of Chinook, Tualatin, Kalipuya, Malala, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. Uh, Oregon is known today for liberal politics and has enjoyed a reputation as a friendly, peace-loving, quirky city. But Portland has hosted the longest continuous Black Lives Matter protest in the nation. However, Oregon was largely settled by white immigrants who had strong prejudices against Black people. I feel like that's an understatement, but surprise! Yeah. And really, anyone else who wasn't white. The Provisional Government of Oregon in 1844 passed an exclusion law which banned slavery and required that slave owners free their slaves, which sounds good, right? Uh, On paper, yes. Go on. However, (laughs) according to the law, Black people who remained in Oregon would be whiplashed and expelled. The law was amended to substitute hard labor for whiplashing. Woo, the boy, that's better. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) But was repealed in 1845 before it could take effect. Yeah, instead of a sundown town, it was a sundown state. Yeah. So following that, in 1849, another exclusion law was passed. This one allowed Black residents already in Oregon to remain, but 
ban further immigration of Black people. In this second version, Black people would be arrested and then ordered to leave. This law was in effect until 1854 when it was repealed. When Oregon was granted statehood in 1859, it was the only state in the Union admitted with a constitution that forbade Black people from living, working, or owning property there. Mm -hmm. They were also denied the right to sue in court. Sounds great. It does sound great. But I will say Oregon was more explicit about these rules than other states. That's the only difference. It wasn't allowed other places. It just wasn't like codified in in black and white. Yeah. Right. On paper. So according to Walida Imarisha, a black studies educator and writer based in Oregon, quote, these laws point to the fact that Oregon was founded as a racist white utopia. The idea was that white folks would come here and build the perfect white society. Jeez. Although enabling legislation was never passed and the clause was voided by the 14th and 15th Amendments passed after the Civil War, the ban remained a part of Oregon's Constitution until it was repealed in 1927. But the original racist language stayed on the books until 2002. Oh, my God. The year I graduated from high school? We yeah. had the we had Beyonce's internet and everything by then. Yeah. Wow. And it's worth noting that at that time, 30% of voters <gasps> elected to keep the racist clause in the Constitution. Okay, so liberal politics? In one city. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) the rest of the state, not so much. (laughs) Yeah. And Martin Luther King warned us when he was arrested in that Birmingham jail be careful of white, quote unquote, liberals because they have. They tend to have views like this, and it's dangerous. Um, And the racist laws and language did the job they were created to do, establish Oregon as a majority white state. By 1940, there were fewer than 2,500 Black people among Oregon's 1.5 million residents. Ooh, that sounds challenging to survive. When a wave of migrants arrived in the state to build ships during World War II, there was nowhere for Black workers to live in segregated Portland. The head of Kaiser Shipyards worried that workers would leave the area due to lack of housing, built a new town for workers hidden beyond Portland's city limits. It was named Vanport, which is a portmanteau of Vancouver and Portland. Oh, portmanteau. I know exactly what that means. No, I don't. It's a mix of two words. <laughs> oh, okay. What word? Uh, what words? Vancouver and Portland. Oh, okay. They mixed it together and named it Vanport. Oh, but portmanteau is literally the definition. Portmanteau means mixing two words together like that. Blending blending two words together. Sorry. Thanks, smart friend. So from 1942 (laughs) to 1948, Vanport was the nation's largest wartime housing development. It was the second largest city in Oregon. And although it was racially segregated, it was one of only two places in the Portland area that black people could live, the other being in northeast Portland. By December of 1944, its total population was approximately 42,000. But towards the end of the war, the population began to fall. Many residents who remained in Vanport were black as they found it difficult to secure other housing. In 1946, more than 15,000 black people lived in the Portland area, which is more than the whole state previously. Holy moly. Oh, my gosh. So they're going to have to change the rules or lose a lot of money. (laughs) They mostly lived in Vanport. 
Vanport gained a reputation for crime, although the recorded crime rate was no higher than in Portland. Interesting. So I wonder why. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Very strange. Yeah. Fruities now starts with the R and ends with the racism. <laughs> so anyway, then on Memorial Day, May 30th, 1948, the Columbia River, swollen by weeks of heavy rain, flooded the low-lying community. The 18,500 residents had 35 minutes minutes to escape. Built of wood on wooden foundations, the rising water floated Manport's apartment buildings off their foundations like toy boats. 15 residents died. Wow. Vanport was not rebuilt, and today the site is occupied by West Delta Park, Portland International Raceway, and Heron Lakes Golf Course. Mm. Some Black leaders believe that, ultimately, the flood was actually beneficial for the city's Black community, as it led to the integration of Black people in Portland. Hmm. Vanport's Black population settled into North and Northeast Portland. Um... Okay. Well, my jury is still out on that one. Um, <laughs> I mean, it sucked for the people who lived there. Exactly. But, I mean, I guess in the grand scheme of things, it was beneficial. I suppose. But it also joins another long list of communities where there were black and brown people that were decimated by either intentional means of disaster in some form or fashion. And they build something else, a golf course. Uh, They paid Paradise to put up a parking lot, essentially. So Williams Avenue was once the vibrant heart of Portland's Black community, formerly known as the Black Broadway. And the real Broadway, by the way, we've talked about this before, is known as the Great White Way. So Black Broadway, sign me up. The corridor included a concentration of Black churches, businesses, social service organizations, and nightclubs that were thriving in active community institutions. The Historic Black Williams Project is a public art project that honors the history of the Black community on North Williams Avenue. Local artists gathered community stories and memories of Historic Williams Avenue and enshrined them in an art walk along the street, which sounds really cool. It does. My artist friend, you would love that. Yes, I would. I would (laughs) love that. (laughs) So check it out at blackwilliamsproject.com. Awesome. Portland is Oregon's most populous city, but it is still known as the whitest big city in the United States. Um, Is that good? Is that bad? Who knows? (laughs) According to the 2019 census, Oregon's population is nearly 87% white. The state's black population is just over 2%. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oregon's history is peppered with racial violence. In 1887, a gang of white horse thieves murdered and mutilated 34 Chinese gold miners. No one was held accountable. Mm. By the 1920s, one in 20 Oregonians was a card-carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan. Whoa. The highest percentage of any state west of the Mississippi. That's Holy crazy. shit. And I think yeah. people don't realize that. Uh, I think people think that the KKK was just in the South. In the South. But it really yeah. wasn't. There's a pretty high. They were everywhere. Yeah. And in the Pacific Northwest. And I think uh, Oregon's, Oregon's fuckery had a lot to do with it, if, you're, if I'm yeah. being honest. Um, Also, we don't talk enough about the harm done to Chinese communities or Asian communities um, during the sort of this time, this, yeah, yeah, this time period. But I'm glad we shouted it out today. Research it more. In the 1970s, (laughs) separatists in the region proposed creating a white ethno state called Mm. the Northwest Territorial Imperative. Mm. Uh... 
No thanks. No thanks. <laughs> um, bland food, lame dancing, and shitty style. No thanks. Um, so in 1988, a group of white supremacists beat an Ethiopian college student named Mulugeta Sara to death with a baseball bat. Afterwards, Portland was sometimes referred to as Skinhead City, and I've heard that before. Ugh. Yeah. Gross. Mm -hmm. According to Randy Blazik, a professor of criminology at the University of Oregon, quote, Portland has a long history of a battle between the right and the left, unquote. In 1987, a group of community members organized to rename a street in Portland to Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. The street chosen was Union Avenue. On April 20th, 1989, the Portland City Council approved an ordinance changing the name. Uh, just got to say, this battle between the right and the left that we're fighting to this day yeah. seems to me a battle between the left and just plain wrong and stupid. Yeah. It's yeah, not right at agreed. all. Yeah. <laughs> so the pushback to the name change was swift. Of course it was. A group of opponents, citizens for Union Avenue, embarked on a campaign to put the issue up for a vote. The effort to halt the change was led by Rosalie Huss. Who is she and can we send her a bag of dicks? Her husband, <laughs> Walter Huss, and other far-right conservatives. Walter Huss was one of Oregon's leading right-wing activists from the late 1950s up into the early 2000s. He was a one-time fundamentalist minister, so you know that's great. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Who ran an anti-communist freedom center in Portland in the 1950s and 60s. Of course. Which was affiliated with the John Birch Society. Sounds great. Yeah. Freedom for who, Mr. Huss? That's hmm? awesome. Yeah. <laughs> freedom for who? <laughs> uh, so these wrong-wingers uh, <laughs> published a paper called the National Eagle, which promoted communist freedom fear-mongering and had both anti-Semitic and anti-Black overtones. In the 1960s, Republican Senator Mark Hatfield was personally attacked by Huss's newspaper after introducing the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for a Portland speech. Huss had ties to dozens of neo-Nazi and right-wing domestic terrorist groups in Oregon and around the nation. He became the chair of the Oregon Republican Party in 1978. More power? Wow. No! Oh, my God. <laughs> no. <laughs> the Oregon Supreme Court eventually ruled that the city commission vote to change the street name was an administrative decision, not a legislative one, and not subject to change through initiative. And Union Avenue officially became Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. All right. Uh, small victory, right? Yeah. So now we're going to get into the early life of Homer Lee Jackson the third. What do you got, Beth? <laughs> Homer Lee Jackson the third was born on December 18th, 1959 in Berkeley, California. His family moved to Portland, Oregon in the early 70s. He had at least one brother. I don't know if he had any other siblings. Uh, his mother married in 1982 to a man that she met in Portland. Mm -hmm. We're unsure what happened to Homer's father. So... I, I just have to point out that this he, he was in the Bay Area in the 50s and 60s. Black right. Panther, like Black Panther all day, baby. Um, I don't <laughs> know if his parents were Black Panthers, but I, I am almost certain that he would have been in proximity to those messages of Black pride and helping the community, etc. Um, and to move to the whitest state of the nation yeah. <laughs> as an yeah. early teenager Very could not have different. been easy. Yeah. So right. early on in childhood, Homer suffered from a variety of health issues, including congestive heart failure, as well as anterograde amnesia. P 
people with anterograde amnesia syndromes may present with widely varying degrees of forgetfulness. This greatly affected his ability to learn, and Homer dropped out of school after the 10th grade. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do? If someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you, would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. So that's it for his early life. Now let's get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. From 1978 through 1983, Jackson was repeatedly arrested for various property crimes, such as burglary, but each time got off with minor prison sentences. He was also arrested on suspicion of rape, but those charges were dropped. Hmm. By the early 1980s, he developed an addiction to alcohol and crack cocaine. He also used weed and amphetamine and later said he had frequent blackouts. Every few weeks, he'd go down to Northeast Union Avenue to pick up sex workers. In early 1983, Essie Jackson, 23, the mother of a young child, disappeared. Her mother last saw her on January 21st, 1983, when she drove Essie to the intersection of Northeast Union Avenue and Northeast Failing Street. Her boyfriend last saw her on February 13th, 1983, in the area of Northeast Union Avenue. On March 23, 1983, Essie Jackson's body was found on the western edge of Overlook Park in North Portland on an embankment. Her body appeared to have been dropped over a fence and was in the advanced stages of decomposition. So a few months uh, had passed, right? Yeah, it's, it had been a while. She mm-hmm. disappeared in January and then was found in March. Mm-hmm. So she'd been there for a couple of months, probably. Mm-hmm. On July 9, 1983, Tanya Harry, 19, was found dead. Her body was found face down and partially submerged in a pond in West Delta Park. Her body had some lacerations, some injuries to her face, and an apparent ligature mark around her neck. She was last seen getting into a blue pickup truck on Union Avenue the night before. An autopsy report showed that she died of drowning. In a nearby field, police found paper towels with semen on them. A hair found on Tanya's clothing was, this was much later, later matched to the DNA found on the paper towels. Additional evidence was collected from the scene, including a belt that had been broken into three pieces. Detectives at the time investigated Harry's pimp as a potential suspect, but he was cleared. 
clear of what? <laughs> uh, <laughs> pimping is murder, a crime. I guess. Yeah, I guess murder, but <laughs> Jesus. Sex trafficking alert. <laughs> but this was the 80s. Yeah, it was the 80s. Yeah. In early September 1983, Angela Anderson, 14 years old, disappeared from her foster home. Mm-hmm. Her half-sister, Beverly Nels, described her as a good kid, but troubled. On September 22nd, 1983, Angela's body was found by a potential home buyer in a locked vacant house on Northeast Going Street that was being put up for sale, less than a block east of Union. She was found partially disrobed, having been strangled to death. Her wrists were cut superficially and she had a cord tied around her neck. That's interesting. A fingerprint was found on a door in the room where her body was found. Two cool brand cigarettes were found near the stairwell on that floor. Uh, that's a black people cigarette. They like cool. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? I don't, like uh, menthol, right? I think so. But I also think it is that is what it was advertised when you go to stores. Oh, that makes sense. With black people. Yeah. And in the magazines, the uh, the advertisements in black magazines like Essence and Ebony at the time were advertising cools and um, what's another um, black Newports. Um, but interestingly to, to, black, <laughs> to people. black people, when you look at the white ads around the same time, the, the white people are doing like the same thing, like the same kind of poses as the black right. people ads. If you put them side by side, it's just, it's just an interesting thing to, to know. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. This, the, the, huh. they were specifically targeting black people. Targeted with these ads. for that yeah. brand. Okay. Good to know. Hello. On November 19th, 1983, a man called 911 and said that he had killed a girl in a park about three months earlier. This would have been Tanya Harry. Dispatchers sent the information to detectives, but it appears the police either didn't follow up or were unable to determine who the caller was. Latanja Watts, 29, a mother of three, was last seen on Union Avenue by police officer Harry Jackson on the night of March 17, 1987. Officer Jackson, who patrolled the former Union Avenue in the 1980s, knew Latanja. He saw her three or four times in two to three weeks leading up to her murder. During one of the last times he saw her, she wished him well, saying, quote, the good Lord's going to bless you, unquote. He worried about her, saying, quote, she was a small lady and I was concerned about her being out there, unquote. Um, I should also say that now um, police officers or law enforcement, at least the good ones, see sex trafficking victims differently than they did in the 80s. I think in the 80s, they saw them as criminals and now they see them as actual victims. So uh, this this guy... I think saw her as, uh, if not a victim, at least somebody who was a vulnerable. human being who was worthy of concern. Yeah. Um, right. So her body was found on March 18th in a field next to the north end of the Going Street pedestrian bridge. Detectives believe that Latanja's body had been moved before it was discovered. The medical examiner determined that Latanja was killed by manual strangulation. Fingernail scrapings were sent to the police crime lab. Forensic evidence, as well as the similarity of the crimes, indicated to investigators that the murders were linked. Each of the victims was black, they died of asphyxiation, and they were all sexually assaulted. Yeah, so after three victims, the uh, authorities took notice. Um, and I don't know if it would have been the same way if it had been a pretty young, non-sex trafficked person, if um, right. the effort would have come more swiftly and fiercely. So in the mid-80s, Homer Jackson suffered a gunshot wound during a fight with his brother-in-law, and he had to undergo a surgery that removed one of his lungs. After this incident, Jackson weaned off of his addiction and appeared to cease his criminal activities. 
He also married twice, worked in low-skilled labor, and did odd jobs, then began working for Life Center on Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Life Center was a charity that provided food and clothing to the needy and had been organized by Jackson's grandmother. What a change. Wow. No? Yeah. Am I the only one surprised by this? Listeners? No. <laughs> okay. No, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> You're just tired over there. So on June, yeah. <laughs> on June 15th, 1993, the body of 29-year-old Luana Triplett was found in some bushes by a pedestrian overpass. She was last seen walking west on Northeast Alberta Street at approximately 1.30 a.m. on the day her body was found. Luana was known to be a sex worker with a drug habit. An autopsy revealed that she died of abdominal injuries. Detectives received numerous tips regarding this murder, but one of particular note was a phone call from a subject identifying himself as 21. That's weird. Mm, like 21 Savage? 21, 21, 21. No, the I rapper? No, just 21. He was 21 no. Savage before 21 no. Savage was even a zygote in his dad's nutsack. Anyway... <laughs> 21 gave detectives pertinent information about the crime and told detectives he would call back. But guess what? Uh, he did. And then the story is and, over. And, and then this has been a weekly and, podcast and new yeah. episodes drop Bye. every Thursday. <laughs> no, he never called back. Okay, so he never called back. Then in the early 2000s, Jackson divorced his second wife and moved into an apartment in North Portland. He gradually became very secluded and his mental condition began to deteriorate. By 2006, he had been arrested twice on DUI and reckless driving charges. His behavior was becoming more and more bizarre. Jackson was taken into custody in 2006 and 2007 during incidents in which he was experiencing delusions. In the 2006 incident, he fired a rifle into the street through his apartment balcony door, then called police. It's interesting, the waxes and wanes of his mental state. It's not yeah. how, It's not sudden, and it's almost long periods of okayness, long periods of not okayness. Um, yeah. That's my scientific evaluation. <laughs> so he told the officers that an intruder had attempted to burglarize his apartment by climbing up the balcony. Jackson also asked one of the investigating officers about the woman standing next to the officer. Nobody was standing next to that man. Hmm. Yeah, something ain't right. Nope. <laughs> I love it when you bust out your Southern lady. Scarlett O'Hare, is that you? Something ain't right. I don't think Scarlett would say ain't. Oh, really? I don't know. I've never seen the movie, but I know she's a white lady from the South. She wouldn't say ain't. Yeah. Huh? She spoke proper. She she lived in a plantation, so oh. you know, she was high class. Oh, excuse you know. me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How dare I? Whoops. <laughs> In 2007, police responded to multiple calls from Jackson, during which he said that he believed that people were breaking into his house. Hmm. And he told officers that he had a gun. In one incident, he refused to let them inside and threatened to beat them with a stick. That works really well on officers. Trust me. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've seen it. I've seen all the videos. No, wait, I haven't. (laughs) So investigating officers concluded that Jackson was likely hallucinating. The officers entered the apartment and subdued him by force, all while Jackson threatened to shoot them. Due to his erratic behavior, he was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation, which concluded that he was unfit to stand trial and instead should be treated at a mental health facility. Now, we liberal Portland. Um, this is yeah. one thing I think Portland, compared to other large cities, does do well is getting people mental health treatment um, before anything else. 
Yeah, this is a surprising part of the story when they actually got him some Right, help. right. And I don't know if any other city would take this course of action other than Portland. Yeah, they'd be like, throw him, yeah, in, throw him in exactly, jail. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. After a four-year treatment, Jackson was released with a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. From 2011 to 2015, Jackson was living quietly in northeast Portland with his nephew. He did not work and lived on monthly disability benefits. During this period, he experienced problems with insomnia, took medication for depression, suffered from bouts of hypertension, and he had difficulty walking. He was taking medication for paranoid schizophrenia and suffered from congenital heart failure. Remember, he had that when he was a kid. He also drank alcohol on a daily basis. That can't be good. No, uh, it's poison, actually. (laughs) Yeah. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. What the what, Beth? Detectives in the Portland Cold Case Homicide Unit began re-examining the cases in 2004. Later, they started working with forensic investigators to identify physical evidence that could be tested with new technology, which allowed them to get a DNA profile from smaller samples of evidence than in the past. In 2014, the lab reported that a mixture of DNA, oh, I love love the word, it just mm, invigorates me. I'm back now. (laughs) The mixture of DNA with two contributors was found in the left-hand fingernail scrapings of Latanja Watts. The minor profile was consistent with Latanja's DNA. The major profile matched DNA from a cigarette butt that was left at the Angela Anderson's homicide scene. Uh Uh-oh. Hang on. Had to do it. (laughs) Had to. Jackson's DNA matched both the cigarette butt DNA profile from the Angela Anderson crime scene and the left-hand fingernail scrapings of Latanja Watts. In addition, Jackson could not be excluded as a contributor to DNA found near the location of Tanya Harry's body. Jackson was arrested on Thursday, October 15th, 2015 at his apartment and brought in for questioning on one allegation of aggravated murder. What? Me? He was held by police and questioned for more than seven hours over two days before being booked in jail. Did you see his interrogation videos? I didn't. Ooh, did you? Yes. And um, going over this case and his issues with mental health, it right. at first it seems crazy, right? It, but knowing a little bit more about his background, it makes sense because he's like, I don't remember doing that. But if I did, sorry, sorry, we'll yeah. get into it. Yeah, I did read about that. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't watch okay. it. Okay. Right. Well, you probably couldn't handle it. You would be pissed. You put a. You would have picked up your laptop and threw it across the, sc- the, the, <laughs> the room. Yeah. Yeah, I would have been very yeah. frustrated yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> At first, he denied knowing anything about the murders. The detectives told Jackson that no matter what he did, he would be charged with murder. They also appealed to Jackson to help the families of the victims by confessing. And after several hours, Jackson told detectives he did remember the incidents and confessed. So I don't know if the officers at this point are like, he didn't remember, he didn't remember, he remembered, we win. But that doesn't work out in terms of the courts. Uh, So, and we'll find out. So a neighbor said, quote, the guy hardly came out of his apartment. He never bothered anyone, was really quiet. We're kind of all stunned. We didn't hear a peep about this. I guess you never really know who people are. Unquote. <laughs> Check us out. It's Fruit Loops. We drop every Thursday. Yes, you don't know who people really are. <laughs> 
The women's relatives praised Portland police for not forgetting their loved ones. Billy Carter, a cousin of Angela Anderson, said, quote, We're very excited about how the Portland police cold case detectives pursued this relentlessly, and the new forensic information came out to justify the arrest. We're very grateful, unquote. Mm. Now we're going to get into the trial. I'll tell you. So in October of 2015, Jackson's court-appointed attorney entered a not guilty plea on his behalf on the uh, 12 count of aggravated murder. Relatives and friends of the victims filled three rows in the courtroom's gallery. Jackson, 55, appeared in court via video. Jackson's attorney asked that the entire case be dismissed, or at the very least, the four murder cases separated into individual cases, saying that if all four murder cases went to trial at once, substantial prejudice would result. The defense also claimed that during the interrogation, police went beyond their standard training and made promises of leniency and legal advice. See? And in October of 2017, Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge Michael Greenlick tossed out Jackson's confessions, stating that the confessions were, quote, made under the influence of fear produced by threats and promises of leniency, unquote. And I will say in the interrogation, the officers were, in terms of the interrogations I've seen where people confess when there's a black guy and white cops, they were really nice to him. So it was it was huh. weird to see him sort of just fess up. They were really friendly yeah. and non-combative. It was uh, it was strange because I'm I'm not used to seeing that. Huh. So not used to seeing mm-hmm. that. Yeah. In 2018, the Oregon Supreme Court tossed out several murder confessions because of the way Portland detectives conducted their interviews involving defendants with mental illnesses. The court ruled that quote the detectives' methods and inducements may have persuaded the defendants to tell detectives what they wanted to hear, whether or not that was the truth. Unquote. Yeah, I would agree with that. I know you can't stand to watch it, Beth, but it it was in it was really interesting to me to see. It was an interrogation like I have not seen in a long time. So um, in its ruling, the Supreme Court pointed out something Greenlick said when he tossed out Jackson's confessions, quote, as the court put it, if a defendant thinks he has no chance of prevailing in court, he is much more susceptible to being under the influence of threats and inducements because it's a little bit of what harm will it do for me to confess, unquote. Oh, my God. Does... (laughs) Is this in any law books or teaching books? This, why don't, duh. I can't believe it took going all the way to Supreme Court for them to get this, this conclusion. What? You're like almost speechless. I, 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 I I quit. I quit. I hate it. I hate it here so much. Okay, (laughs) brought to you by May I Be Excused Lotion. (laughs) In its ruling, the Oregon Supreme Court pointed out that detectives appeared to have used what's known as the Reed technique when they interrogated Jackson. The court wrote, quote, that technique involves isolating a suspect in a small room to increase anxiety, confronting the suspect with accusations of guilt and emphasizing the strength of the evidence against the suspect. Unquote. Mm, that's exactly what happened. And we should say it's read R-E-I-D, not R-E-A-D, like reading that right. he didn't they didn't read him for filth and uh, attack no, his no, outfit was... <laughs> or his hairstyle or no. his demeanor in a shady way. It was uh, no. different than that. Uh, so yes. Jackson 
Jackson was in poor physical health at the time of the interrogation, in addition to suffering from schizophrenia, depression, memory loss, and a history of blackouts. Quote, given these characteristics, the detective's interrogation methods, isolating him and cutting him off from his family, and encouraging him to see confession as a means of terminating the interrogation, resulted in admissions that were not reliable. Unquote. I can't believe it took all of this to get to this. Yeah. Come to on, y'all. And, and several years. Jesus. Yeah. All right. Where's the DNA? Can we just get to the DNA part? <laughs> we'll okay, get there. Thank we'll you. Get there. <laughs> While the ruling tossed out Jackson's confessions, the case remained ongoing. And in 2019, investigators alleged that Jackson also killed 29-year-old Loana Triplett in 1993. But they dismissed the counts involving Essie Jackson. In a release, Multnomah County District Attorney's Office said that even though the office was not prosecuting Essie's case anymore, Jackson was still a suspect in her death. Prosecutors argued what was being called a, quote, what are the odds theory, unquote. <laughs> That's not how you play with people's lives. What is this? Oregon, do better. So basically, they argued that it was not a coincidence that Jackson's DNA was found at the scene of at least three, if not four, of the crime scenes. The defense argued that his DNA was found at the scenes of three places where homicides occurred and a sample that couldn't be excluded at a fourth scene. But, quote, that's totally different than saying his DNA was found on four victims, unquote. Is it? Okay. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay, OG says so. So, in Angela Anderson's case, the two cigarette butts found near her body were tested for DNA and two profiles were found, one on each. One matched the DNA profile of Jackson, the other of Angela. Jackson's left thumbprint was also found on a hatch of a closet access door on that floor, not far from where one of Anderson's socks lay, which the judge found relevant. But the defense noted that there were at least two unidentified male DNA profiles at the scene as well. One on a cord found around her neck and used to choke her and one on the sock she wore. In the case of Luana Triplett, the DNA profile of Jackson was found on a swab taken of a bite mark to Luana's right nipple. Defense lawyers argued that another man's semen was found in her underwear. In Tanya Harry's case, Jackson's partial DNA couldn't be excluded from a section of a broken belt found near her body. But the defense argued that that's not the same as saying there was a DNA match. And that's that's true. Also, a paper towel found in a field that Tanya is presumed to have been run through to get away from her attacker was matched to another man's semen. Prosecutors argued that the paper towel was found too far away from Tanya's body to be significant. In Latanja Watts's case, while Jackson's DNA was found in scrapings from the fingernails on her left hand, DNA from other unidentified people was found underneath the fingernails of her right hand and on a scarf near her body. So in 2020, a judge found sufficient evidence to hold Jackson on charges in two murder cases, those of 14-year-old Angela Anderson and 29-year-old Luana Triplett, but found the presumption of guilt wasn't strong enough to tie him to the other two murders. In 2021, after the state had argued before the Supreme Court that the presence of Jackson's DNA and the similarities among the crimes was relevant to proving he committed each crime, the Oregon Supreme Court ruled that prosecutors couldn't introduce crime scene evidence from one killing in any of the other trials that Jackson faced, stating that, quote, the state is required to prove each crime on its own merits, unquote. Wow, where were you guys in the Rodney King trial? 
real. Anyway, <laughs> in January of 2022, under a negotiated deal, Jackson pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of criminally negligent homicide in the murders of Tanya Harry, Angela Anderson, Latanja Watts, and Lawana Triplett. Two courtrooms were opened for family members to watch the proceeding, and some dialed in to watch the hearing on video. He was then sentenced to six years and three months in prison, essentially time served, with three years of supervised release. Um, a lot of people, including myself, don't know what to make of that sentence. Uh, yeah. The case had been hobbled by DNA problems, DNA problems, and years of delays mm -hmm. due to court challenges and appeals. Jackson suffers from diabetes and was treated in a hospital intensive care unit at one point during his time in custody. Considering his poor health and the fact that about three decades had passed since his last crime, that they know of. Mm -hmm. The district attorney's office said, quote, we don't feel he's going to cause harm in our community based on his health and the period of time since he murdered these women, unquote. Chief Deputy District Attorney Kirsten Snowden commented, quote, in the last week, we've had very difficult conversations with victims' families about the stark ramifications of the legal rulings in the case. And ultimately, I can tell you that the consensus was essentially that something was better than nothing, unquote. And they, this is not the first time we've had a quote almost exactly like this verbatim right. from a district attorney right. person who, by the way, is elected. Oregon, are you listening? Um, who is elected and is having to seek justice for families of BIPOC victims or LGBTQ victims. Right. The victim's family members were allowed to speak. Dondra Lawson remembered that her sister Angela loved to draw and liked bright colors. When Dondra was bitten by a poodle as a young child, it was her sister Angela who kissed her wound and assured her that it would be all better. Dondra said she cherishes her scar from the bite. Mary Anderson told Jackson that her heart was hurt ever since she learned the girl found that day was her daughter, Angela. She said, quote, I don't look at you as a man. You are Satan's son. You don't deserve to be out, unquote. Rachel Triplett, Loana Triplett's cousin, held up her cell phone and turned to show a photo of her cousin to those gathered in the courtroom. She said, quote, this is a picture I want everyone to see. No matter if she's a prostitute or not, she still was a sister, a daughter, a cousin, somebody that we loved and belonged to us, unquote. I'm just so happy to hear those words, and I'm grateful that we included it in the script and humanize, you know, whatever we can do to humanize yeah. the victims. And I'm glad that they right. gave the victims' families the opportunity to do so in the courtroom. So it's on yeah. record. So um, Michael Washington, a close family friend of Tanya Harry's relatives, spoke on behalf of her family, including her two brothers who attended the hearing. Quote, for exactly 38 years, six months, and 22 days, our family has been waiting for Tanya's murder to be solved. Unquote. He described Tanya as a gentle soul who got mixed up with an abusive boyfriend after high school graduation and who forced her into sex trafficking. That's how she crossed paths with Jackson, he said. Quote, although we don't deem this as justice, this will allow closure and the opportunity to start the healing process. We're not comfortable with the idea of Homer Jackson being released to the unsuspecting public. We are fearful that more families will have a loved one taken from them by this murderer, unquote. Hours later, Homer Lee Jackson III walked free.
Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com All right, so now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, Homer Lee Jackson III is out in public somewhere. So, yeah, we don't know. He out there. He out there. He outside. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. So now let's get into our takeaways, Beth. What do you think about this case? (laughs) Well, it's really hard to say exactly what happened in this case. Yeah. Or, you know, for sure if he's actually guilty of all all of these crimes. That's a good point. Yeah. The case was plagued with problems regarding the evidence, Mm -hmm. which is why he was let go with time served. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of DNA evidence pointing to him, but there was also a lot of DNA evidence pointing away from him. And I think that they thought if they took it to trial, they wouldn't get a conviction. Um, So I think they figured it was better to uh, do a plea deal and and let him go with time served, seeing that he was actually a sick man, as far as we know, you know, not not a strong, healthy man. Right. And I found that what are the odds theory. It's interesting. interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what are the odds that his DNA (laughs) would be found (laughs) at all the crime scenes? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It does seem pretty damning. But there was also a lot of DNA evidence that was not his at the crime scenes. Right. So I can see why they decided to negotiate the deal. Mm -hmm. As far as why he did it, if he did it, uh, without knowing much about his childhood, Mm Uh, we can only guess. Right, know. right. And um, I'm glad you brought up the DNA because the DNA aspect of this entire case was not brought up until 2022. And jurors are smarter than they were in the 80s and 90s, especially with respect to DNA. So um, for a prosecutor, it can be great or bad. For a defense attorney, it can be good or bad. And I feel like in this case, um both sides, which sucks to talk about with the justice system, both sides did their best to effectively represent their clients, the state versus the alleged perpetrator. Um, Well, convicted murderer in this case. I will also say that there are a lot of villains at play in my head with regard to this case, specifically with regard to harm of BIPOC women and poor women. Um, And systemic oppression is what put them in these really vulnerable positions, resulting in them becoming victims of sex trafficking. Um, Their minds and their bodies were in bondage, essentially. So, you know, it's not surprising that some of them did turn to drugs to um, survive the pain. And I thought of the lack on so many levels, like the lack of resources to provide people with what they need so they didn't have to do engage or be become victims of sex trafficking or um, lack of resources of adequate shelter or adequate education or adequate opportunities for safety and care. And um, I everybody at the end of the day is a human being. Right. And so care and safety, I think also at one point were owed to Homer Lee Jackson before he did really awful things. The child yeah, Homer yeah. Lee Jackson who was suffering was entitled to safety and care. And I don't know if he 
got what he needed. Um, in Portland, <laughs> Portland, I see you. I see you out there hiding in the shadows. <laughs> so Portland likes to believe itself a progressive place. And in many respects, it is, right? But with regard to remedying the problems that white supremacy and oppression created in the inception of the state or whatever you want to call Oregon, I don't know the word for a state becoming a state, but whatever that is, they got a long way to go. And um, one of the girls was in foster care, which is not a perfect system. It's intended to protect kids and many within the system who are working it. Um, Shout out to our friends at What Did You Do Pod, who also cover um, victims and perps of color. Um, They are, I think, social workers. That's their day job. Oh, wow. And they talk about it's a it's a it's a really hard job and do, they're yeah, doing their best. I can't even imagine. I can't either. Yeah. But the statistics also show that most of the children who are more likely to be harmed within this system are BIPOC kids. And a lot mm. of kids fall through the cracks. I'm just thinking of Gabriel Hernandez. Remember? Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. Um, the 14 year old girl who was murdered in this case is also one of those. Angela Anderson. Thank you. Yeah. Who fell through the cracks. And um, it, it's a system and, and uh, children are um, really, really vulnerable. And this is one of those cases where it is really unfortunate that the least of us, I guess, in our society fell through the cracks and ended up yeah. losing her life way sooner than she needed yeah. to. And it is easy to deprive people of humanity if you don't see them as human beings. And the murder victims right. were victims long before their death. And in their death, due to the messy hoedness of the police in their investigation of a very sick person who did really heinous things resulted in a human who took other human beings' lives to be allowed to, quote unquote, live peacefully amongst other humans. It's really unsettling, isn't it? It is. Uh, and yeah, it is. I wish that the... He out there. Yeah, thank you. I wish the prosecutors would have worked (laughs) a little more um, vigilantly with the victims' families to really craft a better version of what justice look like um, for them and had a conversation about restorative justice. Because if anybody is going to do restorative justice, it's the city of Portland. And I don't know why yeah. they let him go, but they're like, that's it. That's all we could do. And But Portland is is capable of so much more. They already have shown us that they are a liberal progressive city. And so I think there could have been more done there. That's all. Um, okay. So now it's time to talk about how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. We just want to say we don't want to keep y'all too long. Send us your tips. Send us your tips on how y'all stay out here yes. in these streets, how you stay outside. We need more tips. Please, please, please. Yes. All right. So we're going to move on to uh, shout out time where we shout out any content by or about any other folks or marginalized or minoritized folks or any true crime goodies. I just wanted to shout out The Sunbearer Trials, which is a book that has yeah. been banned in numerous places. <laughs> and that means we have to purchase it right away. Um, shout yes. out to Bryn for recommending it to us. Uh, she was in our video club. The author is Aiden yep. Thomas. Aiden Thomas is a queer trans Latinx person. Um, and The Sunbearer Trials is about a teen 
who competes in a series of challenges with a bunch of stakes and in this electric New Mexican-inspired fantasy by the author. Um, it is a really, really fun YA read. So check that out wherever you get your books. Don't give Jeff Bezos nice. too much money, but get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks, yes. Bryn, for the recommendation. Thank you, yeah. What do you got, Beth? Speaking of our video club, we reviewed LA 92. Mm -hmm. uh, it, that was this past weekend. And uh, so wanted to shout that yeah. out. It was a really good documentary. Um, it was all archival footage. Mm -hmm. There was like no narration, mm -hmm. but it told the story really well. Yeah. It, the story was about Rodney King's um, beating by police. Beating. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, the riots that followed. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, the riots that followed and the police being... Um, messy hoes? Yeah, messy ass <laughs> messy hoes. Messy ass hoes, yep. <laughs> yep. And then I also wanted to shout out a podcast called Redacted History. Oh! And it's a podcast, I'll quote what they say. We can have real unfiltered conversations about the things that some folk uh -oh. don't want us to talk about. Uh-oh! <laughs> And it's hosted by a guy named Andre White, mm -hmm. and uh, he's got a really nice voice. And oh. uh, yeah, it's really, really interesting. This past episode was about um, the lost cause. Oh, my it, God. Rip yeah. up. Subscribed. Yeah. I, don't care, I don't care what else happens today. I'm listening to an episode of this. Oh, my God. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of stuff that we talk about. So, yeah, oh. give it a listen. Thank you, Beth. So just to recap, that is The Sunbearer Trials. It's a book. Get it wherever you get books. Audio, paperback, uh, hardcover, whatever. You know books. And also LA92. Uh, it is a documentary. You can find it on um, Google and Amazon Prime. And depending on where you are, just look up LA92 yeah. and also Redacted History, which is also a podcast wherever you get your podcast. No! No! <laughs> All right. Well, that's the end of the show. Beth, until next time, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five-star review. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. part who is she in can we send her a bag of dicks <laughs>
been a long week. I feel like it should yeah. already be Saturday, and it's not. <laughs> it should be over. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Something is creeping in. Don't follow. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 